Welcome to ADHD Flourishing about living awesomely with autism and ADHD. You deserve recognition for both the challenges and the superpowers of this unique neurotype. Let's celebrate wisdom and support from real life stories and talk strategies to manage the difficulties of day-to-day life so we can move beyond that to thriving and building a sustainable and awesome life. If you want to be here, you are accepted here and you belong. I'm your ADHD host, Mattia Murray. Let's do this. Welcome to my guest, Linda Tai. She is a mental health professional, a storyteller, and I know her from having taken her 12-week somatic regulation class, which I know I've sent at least at least five other people to take at this point, probably more because I talk about it so much. <laughs> I love it. Um, she is one of my personal heroes, so I'm very excited that she's here, and I'm going to let Linda introduce herself. But I tell you what, it is such a joy to be in your company again, and there's so much bubbling up inside of me as I'm sitting here with you, and check this out. You know what I'm doing right now? I'm doing that neurodivergent thing where I'm stalling where I just let my mouth run because I'm like, oh, I'm on the spot. (laughs) So introductions. I am, let's see here, where do we begin? I was born in Vietnam. I was raised in Australia. These days I live in Fairbanks, Alaska, which is the traditional lands of the Dene people of the middle Tanana Valley. I often think of, of myself as redefining what it means to be American and redefining what it means to be Australian and redefining what it means to be Vietnamese. And as I look back on my life, I am just ever so grateful because in Australia, I never felt quite Vietnamese enough and I never felt quite Australian enough. And it was here in Alaska that I actually got to experience how Vietnamese I am and how Australian I am and reclaim that and in the process of that, discover and explore and realise how screwed up (laughs) that whole journey (laughs) has been and how amazing it is that I survived. And to be able to come out the other side of that healing journey and be a mental health clinician, a somatic coach, a speaker, an educator, um, and to be able to be in the world in bigger ways, in much bigger ways. Beautiful. Thank you. And opening question, what are you passionate about right now? Right now in this moment, about a month ago, I came back from a week-long experiential workshop, very pioneering, very experimental, very co-created, and it was bringing in together ketamine and ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, and the psychotherapy modality we, we were using was psychodrama structures. Okay, so let's separate the two. So ketamine is an anesthetic, but in low doses, it's a psychedelic, meaning that it alters your state of consciousness. And so you can take ketamine nasally, um, orally via lozenges, intramuscularly through an intramuscular injection or intravenously. And so we did the intramuscular injections. And then there are various dosing and dosages that you can do with that. And it's very much dependent on each individual. And then the psychodrama structure side of things is where in a group setting, you recreate the tableau of your life. So, and I know I said excited about it because I am excited about it. And yet I remember when I first like witnessed it, I was like, what the fuck is this? This is like 10 years of therapy in the space of an hour. And I'm like being blown out of my, 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 my stratospheres right now. 
but you get other group members to like, will you play the role of my real father? And then you place that person like exactly where it feels right for you. And then you get to say the things to your real father that you're, that the truth that's on your heart. And then you ask someone else, can you play the role of my ideal father? And then that person comes and sits close and it's strange and new and weird and conceptually has never been imprinted upon you. So your brain's going, what the fuck, what the fuck, what the fuck? And then this person says, if I were your real father, you would have been the apple of my eye and I would have picked you up and held you and played with you every day or whatever the words were that you needed to hear, right? And you're giving these people the words to say back to you based on like the intense depths of your wound. And so you finally get to hear the words from someone who's like playing that role and then the, the grief just comes. Like the grief just comes and it, 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 it opens a floodgate and a path for the imprinting somatically and at the nervous system level of what you didn't get to experience. And so trauma isn't just what happened that shouldn't have happened, it's what didn't happen that should have happened. It's the failure of that imprint to happen. And so with the psychodrama structures, I got to have imprinted upon me the experience of an ideal parents, both ideal parents. I also got imprinted upon me ideal ancestors. I got to give my parents ideal elders because being refugees, the old people were left behind, the elders were left behind. Right, the disabled people were left behind. The you know we we brought our children. Can you imagine not bringing your children with you? And yet the elders were like, "We've lived here our entire lives. We can't leave. Like it's it's too much for us." And so my entire community had like one or two elders amongst everyone. And as a result, I grew up wanting to take care of my parents. I could feel the burden and the weight of what they carried. And so in my psychodrama structure to be able to give my parents like ideal elders that would have been there for them in the ways in which they needed back there back then opened up this huge energetic space around me to not have to take care of them anymore and when that opened up I was then able to take in the ideal parents and what I've noticed since then is one the the ketamine allows the neuronal networks in my brain to open up just that little bit more with all of this new information and allow it to be imprinted at a deeper level because I've done that psychodrama structure experience in the past without the ketamine. And what I've noticed since my re-entry into the world is that I am no longer defaulting to taking care of your nervous system in order for my nervous system to feel safe. Mm. And that's been a lifelong journey for me because it's a survival strategy. It's an extension of love. It's a way in which I helped keep my family together. It's a way in which I got my own needs met to feel important or to feel like I belong, to feel worthy, to feel useful. And now that I've been imprinted with delight and joy for my mere existence, and that other people take delight in my mere existence and in my joyousness. That in and of itself has freed me from being hypervigilant and hypersensitive to other people's nervous systems and managing and caretaking and turning me 
inside out at that nervous system level in order to accommodate and comfort your nervous system. It can become more of a superpower rather than something that depletes me slowly over time or very quickly (laughs) over the course of a day. You know those days, Matea, where you come home and you have to like turn the lights off and be in a dark room and crawl under your, 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 your weighted blanket and I pull all my stuffies in and I call my dog over and I just need no sensory input and I actually need to be around nothing that needs anything from me and then I open my eyes and then my plants need water, my dishes are saying they need me to do them, my socks are saying they need me to pick them up from the floor, right? It's, 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 and I just gotta, I just got to disconnect altogether from anything that might possibly need me. Mm. Yeah, part of that, you know, the autistic meltdown, the neurodivergent meltdown, the CPTSD, like, drain, my window of capacity has gotten so depleted because I didn't realise this is how I move through the world. And now on the other side of this journey, I'm able to see all the baby steps that needed to happen before I could do a ketamine and psychodrama experience without everything in my being just going, ah! <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that, that resonates. And also, uh, I mean, I haven't done that experience obviously, but the, you know, these different experience, healing experiences we have, the sort of the slow versus the, the fast, right? I actually, I had an episode about that recently where I was talking about how I think for neurodivergent people, we want the interest and the excitement and the drama of the big change, but then our body is like, no, it's too much. And I can't imagine what something like that would have been like at the beginning of my journey because there was just too much to process. Like I can, I can only imagine I would have needed to shut down for like months afterwards. And now I feel like I could do something like that and have that, you know, that deeper imprinting, that somatic experience, but it's because so much work has already happened. Yeah, that was the interesting part about the ketamine because we had three doses and the last dose was a high dose experience and we actually experimented like ketamine first and then psychodrama after and then psychodrama first, ketamine after and then let's do ketamine and psychodrama at the same time right, and then let's do the, the high ketamine experience to complete the week. And for about four or five days afterwards, I had what I call the ketamine hangover. But Mm. really what it is, is it was like the car was in first gear and it wouldn't go any faster. And a part of me was like, but hang on, i got to get shit done. And it wasn't going to happen. I could not willpower myself. And what, what happened is that I just had to go in first gear as I moved through the world. And that allowed, I believe, for the experience to be integrated because it forced me to slow down instead of me just catapulting back into my world and going, wow, that was a great experience and, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I got my socks blown off and it was fantastic because, you know, the, the, there's that ADHD part where I mistake intensity for intimacy. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mistake enmeshment for intimacy. So I chase intense enmeshment and I love it. <laughs> and the ketamine not only allowed things to, to seep into a deeper level during the experience, I also noticed for some folks the ketamine allowed them to open up and actually have the experience. But for me, most powerfully was that afterwards, I couldn't just slingshot back into my life. Yeah. Which speaks exactly into what you were just saying. Yeah. And the slow change doesn't feel as sexy. It's not, you know, it doesn't have the intensity. But for most people, most of the time, that's what actually imprints, right? Unless you're in these, you know, big, beautiful, curated spaces where you're getting, you know, you have all that support and you have this sort of extra boost behind it as you did. But then at home, you don't even necessarily want that, right? You want it. it you want it to be sustainable. And I, I love that you mentioned integration because I feel like integration is the most important thing of all of the work, right? We do the we do the work potentially with a practitioner, and then we have to integrate. And it's the day to day, right? We can't rely on a teacher or a person to always be guiding us through every moment, right? Yes. And that's where the integration is structural. There's so much social justice that's actually evolved in the capacity mm. to integrate because we it's, it's a challenge to integrate when you are living in survival mode. Oh, yeah. And to have enough spaciousness in your life where integration is possible is actually, I think, foundational to the journey of healing. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually, as a, as a trauma therapist, I am really reticent to do large chunks of trauma reprocessing work unless someone has the space afterwards for integration. And that's structural in their lives. It's the partner, it's the pets, it's the working part-time, it's the, I was raised in Australia. You can, your doctor can write you a medical certificate and you can collect unemployment benefits for three months that would be such a great time to then do trauma reprocessing work because you've got fixed income coming in and if you happen to be living with folks who are supportive of that and of you and able to help you with having food on the table and those aspects of life it makes integration more possible and I and I also believe that healing is a lifelong thing mm-hmm and yet some of us with nervous systems that run a bit more sympathetic <laughs> that are a little bit more fast we 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 want we want it all now yeah and it's okay and it's okay yeah exactly <laughs> that was actually that was one of the first things i learned from you in the in the somatic regulation class the first cuz i took it twice <laughs> so the first time i took it um i was i was having stuff come up that was so intense that I would like then miss, you know, the next 10 minutes of what you were saying. Cause I was just like floating in my head, like thinking about something. And I remember one of the first things being just that the, the polyvagal, the window of tolerance described in more detail than I'd seen it before. And talking about, you know, kind of people who are shifted up, you know, maybe more comfortable in the higher end of that, you know, pushing toward fight, flight, freeze, et cetera. And just, and I was like, oh, that's me. That's my nervous system. My nervous system feels better in this area in general, in that I feel so much less safe at rest. And that was so freeing 
because to me, I didn't go, oh, I need to fix this immediately. I was just like, oh, great. That's how I'm currently functioning. This is how I'm like being okay. I'm not going to try to force myself to rest. And it was actually like, again, over the course of now the last, I guess, few years uh, or a couple years since that I have, I now can rest more and actually have it feel good and have like a much broader array of things that I consider to be rest as well. And not just trying to force my brain to do something that it did not like and did not want. (laughs) For some of us, rest is like, let me pick up something I'm totally passionate about and geek out and dive into it and lose myself in it for a few hours. Like that's actually rest. Yeah. Or restful for us. Yeah. Yes. Yay. Yeah. And I know like right right before we started uh, recording, we were also talking about rest seasonally, Mm -hmm. which I feel like this is the first year where I'm really honoring and noticing how much I slow down in the winter. And especially with the, with the darkness, which is funny because I grew up in Seattle, which is like, (laughs) it's, it's a dark place literally (laughs) in terms of sunlight. So it's not even that I have super high sun needs. It's more just in the winter. I always slow down, but Typically, I've had, even when self-employed, I've typically created a schedule for myself that didn't really allow for those ups and downs as much. And now, for example, there were a couple different things I wanted to do that would have been really fun. Uh, one was queer soccer, which I was doing in the summer, and then and they're continuing in the fall. But in the fall, it would be ending at like 9.30 p.m., 45 minutes away from my house. And I was like, I just won't be happy if I do that. Same thing if I take an art class ending at that time. I was like, by then, even if I'm not literally in bed, my body just wants to be chilling. It does not want me to be exercising or you know, trying to be creative. Like this is not the time. And I think in any previous year, I would have just kind of pushed through and said, oh, it's fine. It'll be fun. And then just been very grumpy for the last hour of that activity the whole time because I know myself and that's what would have happened. So yeah, I've been anyway, in a lot of ways, I've been noticing and honoring the the real change in energy seasonally that my body has yeah the one of the secrets of life is that it's not about managing your time it's about managing your energy levels yeah and that begins with actually noticing what your natural rhythms are and recognizing the ways in which we have gotten messaging otherwise yep yes yes you know, I got really good advice from my accountant once when I was in my early 20s. He said, because I was wanting to create a budget, and he said, don't create a budget. Start with writing down what you're spending and what you're earning. And this way we can actually notice what reality is and then we can base a budget based on reality <laughs> rather than what you think you should be saving or what you should be earning let's base it on reality and then based on reality we'll set some goals and then we'll figure out what the shortfall is and how you could make that up and the same goes with energy like start with noticing the natural rhythms of your day your week your month your year and giving your body permission to communicate to you what it is that your body needs and would find nourishing yeah 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 And for me, the point of being nourished at this point is to feel good, not to just be able to work harder. (laughs) Fuck productivity culture. (laughs) 
Yeah, your your inherent self-worth is not based on how much you create or produce or perform. Yeah. I love that you're nodding right now and I hope everyone that's listening right now is nodding as well. Your inherent <laughs> self-worth is not based on how much you create, produce or perform. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I know that that lands especially hard with my audience because for people who, you know, I mean, for example, disabled people are lifelong given the message, the, the exact opposite of that, right? That it's you need to prove that you deserve to be here. And certainly in American culture, we don't have that option to, you know, take the three month burnout break. Like sometimes we're forced to because we can't work anymore, but it's not supported structurally. I'm going to take a big breath and lean into the pain that's in my chest right now in the naming of that. Yeah. It sucks. Yeah. 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 And what that also means is if and when you're able to begin to scaffold together in baby steps what it is that you need, to not then feel guilty for having that. For having the needs? For having the needs and also for having the nourishment. Mm. Mm. Yeah. It's it's um, yeah. it's the it's the disabled version of survivor guilt, which I experience at the class level. I also experience it at the um, racialized identity level. I also experience it that at the refugee level, that there were people who were left behind. And I can also see how for disabled individuals that there is a survivor guilt that then happens when you're able to begin to scaffold and put together the supports that you need in order to flourish, that there's a survivor guilt that arises as a result of that. Yeah, thank you for naming that. We stand on the shoulders of giants, Mattia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what is it? What is it? I say in in twelve step meetings, we say we only keep what we have by giving it away. Mm. Yeah, right. And I believe that's where like the next wave of decolonization happens is where the gatekeeping stops. Mm-hmm. Right, it's where these things that were previously only taught to psychotherapists that they did with their clients in order to you know have a living and be and call themselves experts is now available freely to the world through books, through podcasts, through websites, through all forms, all mediums. Yeah. Yeah, not just words in academic journals that are, that are such a struggle to yeah. read. <laughs> I I love spread that's like one of my passions is spreading the message that whatever you want to learn, it is out there for free. And if you want to, you know, purchase something that is giving it to you in a more direct or quick or supported manner. That's great. But also it is possible to find all this information. And at the same time, right, going back to the structural support of people having the time to find what they need, learn it, and then have time to integrate it. That itself requires privilege of of that space and time to be able to actually take it in and like in the way that you learn best. Yes. Yes. I survived for a long time on YouTube videos and TED Talks. Mm-hmm. You know, when I began my healing journey, I think the internet had been out for not very long. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And somehow YouTube emerged. And that's when I started learning about the ACEs study, Adverse Childhood Experiences. Uh, I started learning more about childhood trauma. I was in the throes of my own addiction recovery and I'm hearing Gabor Mate talk and then I'm hearing I'm hearing so much that got me thinking, oh, it's not me. It's not like me right. that I'm the fuck up that I can't not do the things that I can't not do. And I had no idea that my childhood had impacts on my adulthood. I had no idea that it was about what happened to me rather than what's wrong with me. And so you you use what you, you it's it's available there for you. You just got to find it. You got to scrap it together. We are resourceful mm-hmm. and we are resilient. <laughs> <laughs> and we've made it thus far and you know, who can you ask for help? You know, how can you ask for that help? How can you find it? What is it that you need? What is it that you want? Because whatever you want for you, I want for you. I love that. Yeah. So can you talk more about that healing journey as that was starting? And and I mean, anything that you want to say about any point in it, um, totally open-ended, but just you started listening to things like, what was that process like for you? Well, if we go back, if we backtrack a little bit to the conversation that we had earlier about this, the, the, the social justice piece and the structural piece, I was raised in Melbourne. It was a big city. And I always thought I was depressed, like there was something wrong with me. I hadn't found the right combination of like boyfriend and um, leisure activities and career and money, right? Like I just couldn't figure it out. And because I couldn't figure it out, I was a fuck up. And then I stumbled upon Alaska. And it was these wide open spaces and it was people who come together to fish and to hunt and to pick berries and to do things with their hands and to be outside. And, and I fell in love with a whole new way of life and people who did things with their bodies rather than the messages that I got in the city, which is study, go to school, study hard, learn something, be the expert. I needed to move my body and I needed to be with other people who also wanted to move their bodies and to be outside. Anyway, I met a man, I fell in love. We bought five acres of land in 2006, which at the time was less than $11,000. And I had that money saved up through my waitressing tips, as well as through the other odd jobs I had along the way. Because while I worked full-time in corporate, I was in direct marketing and product marketing and then export logistics and operations before that. I actually made more as a waitress than what I did like doing the corporate thing. And yet I couldn't cut the corporate thing. Like the eight to four or nine to five every day, five days a week was like a slow death sentence for me. I couldn't do it. Like the body clock thing couldn't adjust to it. I couldn't figure it out. And so discovering Alaska and discovering that land was relatively affordable based on what I had and then meeting a man who knew how to build And then we built a log cabin together on this piece of land that is outside city limits. So there's no planning permits. There's no council submissions. There's no architectural approval, colonized world rubbish. And I know that those safety things are there in place for a reason, but they actually hold us back from being resourceful, from learning from each other how to do things for ourselves. And so I'm having this journey of learning how to hunt and fish and grow my own vegetables. And then we build a log cabin together where we're literally building it as we build it. And so for less than $30,000 at the age of 29, we're technically retired because we own where we live. Mm. 
And that gave me the breathing space. We had no running water. We had electricity. Our electricity bill was 30 bucks a month. We would go and fetch water and in five-gallon jugs and bring it home. And so our water bill a month was like less than a quarter, <laughs> as in less than a quarter <laughs> of a dollar. <laughs> um, we had the fortune of being able-bodied even though our nervous systems were shredded and I wasn't functional in the world in a huge capacity because I was just sharp and prickly and unable to engage with other humans in ways that were effective for moving through the world. I was really freaking traumatised. Like all the people I knew during that period of time, like we're not friends now and I don't blame them, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we ate salmon and moose and rice and beans and one of us would work at a time or one of us would work seasonally or we'd work part-time, but yet we had that time for our nervous systems to actually heal. And people ask me as a trauma therapist who's trained in all these modalities, you've got a lot of, like, I got so much benefit personally, from internal family systems, from brain spotting, from sensory motor psychotherapy, from the safe and sound protocol, from neurofeedback, from all of these modalities. And I offer them to people with insurance and people with Medicaid. And there was a lot of work that happened prior to that, that allowed me to be able to go back to school, to read, (laughs) to integrate information. (laughs) Um, and to actually do the work, to actually do the work, yeah. And so it was just this slow process of not realising how traumatised I actually was but knowing that I needed some space and time to heal. That turning point really was having somewhere to live that was stable and secure, yeah. Same, housing stability was an absolute noticeable turning point in in my journey as well when I got a an affordable unit through the city uh when I did that it was just like oh okay there's 25 percent of my nervous system is just taken care of (laughs) and then also what you said about you know like uh realizing uh, the pre-work because I also kind of can look back and see that period of time of of sort of pre-prep for the official work uh I was just so shocked to learn over time how much of my personality was just trauma. <laughs> Things that I was like, this is who I, who, you know, if I were to describe myself at a party and look back and I'm just like, oh yeah, no, I don't do that anymore. <laughs> you know, not that it's a thing that needs to be fixed, just how much yeah. of the ways that I moved through the world, um, the ways that I you know, used my energy and targeted my energy and the, and the things that I was trying to Extract is the word that comes to mind, but the things I was trying to get people to give me were so much based on my needs, based on my own trauma. And now I have, you know, I'm still fundamentally the same person in a lot of ways, but like a lot of the things I was trying to do and get socially are very different at this point. Yeah, it's that bit where pleasure and pain becomes confused. Knowing laugh. 
Yeah, it's that. Um, oh, one of my friends has this phrase. Um, I would, I would shop for condemnation while soothing myself and comforting myself, Oof. or I would shop for comfort and soothing while condemning myself. Oh my god, that's really good. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oh. Yes. Yeah. It's um it's painful to look back. Like I used to bait mm-hmm. bait people to dislike yep. me. And I would bait people to get into arguments with me. Yeah. Yeah. And that's yeah. that thing, that whole shopping for condemnation while soothing myself. And in so many ways that condemnation was actually a form of soothing because it's familiar. Right. And it's so much more comfortable for me than the pain of someone actually liking me. Yeah. Yeah. And that's definitely, I, I also really love the way you talk about, like one of the other kind of big takeaways for me from your work is this language around, uh, you know, superpowers and kind of, you know, these that these coping mechanisms work. Yes. And they're not, you know, like, the goal of healing is not to come in and just like sweep away all the coping mechanisms and leave an empty space to put things in. It's like, no, these are, you're surviving (laughs) with these. And if you're in, if you're in survival mode for any reason, right, whether it's the structural stuff Mm -hmm. or, or if it's that the structural stuff is getting better, but you're emotionally still in survival mode, like that's, we, we have to be with that and honor that and allow that in certain ways. It's not just about like, wiping all of that away. Anyway, I, I really want to do a podcast at some point in, in praise of dissociation because of yes. that. <laughs> like, you know what? I need to dissociate sometimes because yes. literally my system is taking in up to 40% more information than the average nervous system and I get fucking overwhelmed and mm-hmm. I just need mm-hmm. a break. Mm-hmm. Like I need to not have that. Mm-hmm. And dissociation can be a great way to do that. So anyway, not, you know, nobody else needs to do that. That's just how my system works that every once in a while I'm like, you know what? I'm checking out. Yes. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> yes. Yes. And it's the same for the 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 pleasure and pain, you know, connections that get confused or distorted or wired um the wrong way that then expresses to the world in ways that are that are painful. Mm-hmm. Um for other people and for myself it in in hindsight, but at the time, that was the only way I knew how to protect myself from the pain of people actually potentially figuring out that I don't know who I am and the fear of people actually liking me because people actually liking me is painful because if you know me and you like me, then you can hurt me even more. Mm. Yeah. And so there was just so much work to do on so many levels before I was able to let go of the part of me that was so much more comfortable with you disliking me. It was my superpower. Yeah. Yeah. Just like dissociation is a superpower. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. and also, I mean, there's, you know, there's the the grief of looking back, you know, so another, uh, experience I've had kind of coming out as autistic is, oh, and I, oh, and also, I don't know if I've told you this, cause I don't know if I've talked to you since then, but I did get an official autism diagnosis, which is, I guess, nice and useful in certain ways, but it, it was, it was helpful for me, uh, in certain ways and realizing, you know, people do 
have disliked me for some actual reasons from how I'm presenting in the world, right? And that's okay. But then there's, as I'm making more autistic friends in particular, and they just love and accept me for who I am and I don't need to hide or, you know, it's having that experience. There's like, it's great. And also I'm looking back and I'm just like, fuck, <laughs> like I had a lot of, a lot of relationships where, or, you know, attempted friendships or relationships where, uh, it was just, they were never going to like me. And that's really, you know, painful as well to just look back and realize, oh, I was really just banging my head against that wall and it was, it was never going to happen. Yeah. And how we're trained from such a, a young age to hustle for our self-worth, mm. right? We're trained. And, and for some of us, we were trained to go to the barber shop to get a carton of milk <laughs> and you're not going to get a carton of milk from the barber shop, right? Except somehow <laughs> we think that we might if we keep trying hard enough because we live in a society that says just try harder, just try harder, like suck it up, stuff it down, mask up, be someone else. You're not doing it right. Try harder. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And so it's, yeah, it's it's complex and it's nuanced. And we're always creating shadow. And these days I can look back on my life and cringe and be grateful because that means that I've grown. If I look back on my life and I don't cringe, then to me, that's an indication of I haven't actually grown. Can you say more about we're always creating shadow? I believe that consciousness always rises, as in we're always growing. Even when it feels like things are not changing or not shifting, we're actually always growing. And as a result of that growth process, there's always something to look back on the blossoming flower looks back and says, oh, I was a really tight bud. Tight. I was so <laughs> tight. <laughs> and the, the, the tight bud looks back and goes, oh, wow. I was like, I lived in the armpit of the stalk and the, and the, the leaf. <laughs> <laughs> I was an armpit dweller. I'm so glad to be a tight bud. <laughs> and then the, the armpit dwelling side shoot that eventually becomes the flower looks back and says, I, I was this hard little seed or I don't know whatever, sta- there, there might, there's other stages in between, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yet that seed has everything inside of it that it, needs in order to grow, in order to become what it already is in its cosmic blueprint. And so the the opportunity is always there to to embrace growth and embrace impermanence and embrace grief and to take delight in that. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I love that so much because what I like certainly one of the messages I am here to spread and like the reason I'm making this podcast altogether is this idea that at every stage of that plant's journey, it just is what it is. Yes. And that especially that message that you said of the seed having everything it needs, like the blueprint. I believe that so strongly, you know, even of the like 
I had such horrible mental health for so long. Like it was so, so, so bad. And I am at this point, I'm like, yeah, it's possible I could become depressed again, but it hasn't happened in a really long time. And that's like, I, that's kind of what I'm, you know, here to say is like, Hey, people who've only met me in the last five years, they're like, wow, you're so put together. And I'm like, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> <laughs> people who knew me in college know what's up. <laughs> And, you know, this is not even my final form. I'm 35, so. (laughs) (laughs) You know that thing where you take those psychedelic trips and you're – and in your mind's eye, you're seeing an elephant turn into a uh, the, the, turn into a flower, turn into a butterfly, turn into a cloud, turn into a sea lion, turn into a mountain range. Like it's it's that. Yeah. 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 And none of those images are inherently bad, right? Like those those stages are not bad to be in. And I want people to like my ideal is that people can be uh, you know, happy enough or feel good enough where they are in the phase that they're in and just like, you know, be open to that growth if they want it. But also, you know, within the growing process, we absolutely have plateaus or need to take a break. Like over the, you know, many years of therapy that I've had, I've had periods of time where I've taken a break. Cause I'm just like, okay. And now I want to not think about this stuff for a while. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like I don't want to process every week all of the time. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. I believe the growth is happening anyway. Mm-hmm. And there are ways in which we can be supported in that and channel that energy when that energy is emerging or emergent. And yet that seed is going to become a plant, become a flower. Can, can we provide the conditions? Mm-hmm. Can I provide the conditions for my seed to flourish? And can I provide the conditions for other people's seeds to flourish? Yeah. And I think when I was in my trauma, I was all about me and what I need Mm. and not knowing what I needed. And the gift of recovery is the gift of learning how to experiment, how to explore how to discern, how to engage in the trial and error that needs to happen in order to find out. Yeah, I would love to hear more about that. Like how did you figure out what you needed? Oh, it was the gift of desperation that landed me. <laughs> <laughs> that landed me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah, it was the gift of desperation that landed me in 12-step rooms and I also see it as a bit of a karmic thing. I I was asked to lead yoga after a 12-step meeting, after a Narcotics Anonymous meeting and in the process of that I'm listening to people sharing about their lives based on a topic and after about six weeks I said to everyone, wow, I can relate so much to the things that you're saying and I know that drugs and alcohol are part of my own history. However, I haven't had a rock bottom yet around drugs and alcohol. Um, and yet I relate to everything you're talking about around perfectionism, control, hyperfixation, shame, avoidance. And everyone just started laughing at me because they could obviously see it in me before I was ready to acknowledge it in me. And the other piece of this is that 
if people were sharing so openly and open-heartedly and I'm like stuffing down my tears because I am thinking to myself, these are addicts and I'm thinking that they're less than me because I'm not like a, 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 gutter, a gutter snipe addict and I'm judging them and yet they're so much more emotionally healthy than what I am. And so I'm getting my ass handed to me in the process of teaching yoga after this 12-step meeting. And so someone comes in the following week and hands me the patterns and characteristics of codependency. And I thought, and like I'm looking through it and I'm thinking, holy shit, like this is me. <laughs> and, and I didn't know what to do with it. So I'm like, okay. So I stuck it on my fridge and just like stared at it for years. And in the meantime, I'm, you know, I'm attending these meetings because I'm teaching the yoga afterwards. But I start then getting curious about other 12-step meetings. And this is a period of my life where I'm like teaching meditation and yoga and making maybe a hundred bucks a week because I'm happy. I'm, I'm really happy making my own bread, growing my own food and living off of um, a really simple lifestyle. I go back to Bali to go and train with my yoga teachers. In the process of figuring that out, I learn about Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. And on the day that I leave to go to the airport, I buy a book called The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk because a friend of mine mm-hmm. says, hey, you should buy this book on your way. So I end up in Bali, in Ubud. I'm doing some really vigorous yoga every day with my teachers. And the, the, the shit that they make me do is like I start at standing, I reach up with an inhale, and then I land in a back bend with an exhale, and then I come up to standing with the inhale, and then exhale, <laughs> I release my arms down. Now, the fuckery of that is you can't do that on your own. You actually have to, you actually have to trust your teachers. And the more you try to do it on your own, the further you're going to get away from being able to do it. And so I'm just like, and then my body's just like doing all this stuff and being like extended all the way open. And and when you reach, you have to like actually trust and reach, but you have to stay grounded in your legs. And if you grasp and you want, then your body comes con- becomes contracted. So I've got that going on. I'm reading The Body Keeps the Score and I'm, I am – coming to the realization that I am a trauma survivor and this book helps me to make sense of myself and my life but it just slaps me around like so much yeah, yeah? that book fucked me up it was hard to read yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah and so liberating as well right it's that yeah it's that um I don't know I don't have any other phrase for it other than like getting my ass handed to me on a platter so I'm, I'm getting that with my yoga teachers. I'm getting that through this book. Um, I am going to these 12-step meetings through Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. And my very first meeting, I walk in there and I get there early and then people are walking in and I can just tell from their energy, their vibe, that these were my people. And then they pull out the patterns and characteristics of sex and love addiction and we're reading it out together and I just burst into tears because it was me and it was also and it was also everyone else that was in this space and we all had our own nuanced expressions of the core wounding of abandonment that expressed in you know in in ways where we couldn't not and so that was also its own journey in of itself and yet it was all happening to me all at the same time. And once again, that environmental piece, I happened to be staying on my own 
somewhere really exquisitely pleasant where I could go and nourish my body for like less than $20 a day in terms of food and stop my life in order to do that work. Or rather, life stopped me and forced me to do that work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a lot to come together at once. Yes. 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 Yeah. I really get it when people um, pick up the body keeps the score and then they put it down because it's just too much. I really get that. And I really get it when people start going to yoga class and their body starts to open up and stuff comes up and they're like, I'm not going back to that ever again. Mm-hmm. And I really get it when people turn up to a 12-step meeting and they're like, yeah, can't do it. Yeah. Yeah. I had a period of time uh, where every time I did yoga in a class or on my own, I cried every single time where it was just like every single time was a big emotional release. Um, I've had times in yoga classes where uh, I've had like really intense flashbacks based on a specific physical thing or something. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, I guess that was a thing that happened that I forgot about (laughs) that, that very, you know, so absolutely. Yeah. Some of that. And it's, and then there are of course other people who are like, Oh, yoga is the, you know, it's so gentle and it just opens me up in this really lovely, gentle way. And I'm like, cool. Yeah. (laughs) I'm so happy for you. (laughs) Yeah. I did yoga. I'd go to classes so I could learn yoga so I could do it on my own because when I was on my own, I could actually let go into my own body. Yeah. 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 It's a journey. Like it's such a journey, but you know, if it weren't for yoga and meditation, I don't think I would have stabilized my mind and been able to befriend my body enough to become aware of the ways in which I can't not, Mm. you know, how we talk about fight, flight, freeze and flop. Well, there's also fight, flight, fix. And I was a fight, flight, mm. fixed person, yeah? Oh, hell yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Control is my drug. <laughs> <laughs> and my superpower yeah. is to be able to predict because if I can mm. predict, then I can control better without making yeah. it look like I'm controlling. Well, and the fix is so alluring because if I'm the problem, mm-hmm. Then, you know, it's, and it's, it's, it's funny because there's this, you know, messaging in, in certain parts of the self-help community that are like, take full responsibility for your, <laughs> your blah, blah. And I'm like, no, no, I'm taking too much responsibility. I believe that everything is my fault and that I am the problem. And that if I just fix, like if I can fix myself, that it will somehow fix the structural inequities in my life that have led to a lot of these problems. It won't. And it does not do it in retrospect either. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> You don't reach a point of healing and then look back and have your past, like, not suck. <laughs> it's the, I was the other side of the same coin, Matea. So I was the fix everyone else around me. Oh. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was that person. And so my heart goes out to people who get labelled as control freaks because for some of us, whether it's fixing other people or fixing yourself or flip-flopping between the two, yeah, flip-flopping between like grandiosity and self-loathing. For some of us, fix is a survival imperative that then got overlearned and we go back to it over and over again. And then on top of that, we add some neurodivergence where finding the answer gets us dopamine. Yeah. <laughs> <Yay. laughs> <laughs> the answer, dopamine, dopamine. <laughs> <laughs> 
And so our superpower then becomes so seductive when we're at the edges or outside of our windows because it works so well when we're inside the window. So we have we go to that when we're to the edges or outside of the window. Yeah. Oh, I've got my hand on my chest. This might be a moment for some self-compassion. Mm. That's a, yeah. That, how is, how is your journey with self-compassion been? It's a horrible word, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> oh, it's, uh, I'm, I'm sure there's always more that can develop there, but it's so much better than it has ever been. So that's nice. And I think the thing that has really been integrating for me lately around self-compassion is not just the emotional component of it, which is obviously, you know, very important, the self-talk and the, the, the sort of the thoughts that my brain feeds me automatically, the habitual thoughts are so much better than they were. But also I feel like it's really uh, leaking out into the basic day-to-day, just little things that I do as well. So for example, something I said out loud to myself the other day was, I can wear gray socks and be happy because I was wearing black pants and I had like, I reached for the socks and I grabbed the gray ones accidentally. And then I started putting them on and I was like, oh, and then I was like, oh my God, brain, (laughs) if you could calm the fuck down, that would be great. And it's, you know, so to use that extremely tiny, silly example, it would have been fine if I had changed my mind and put the black socks on at any point in the day, that would have been fine. It was fine. It was a nice moment with myself to just be like, haha, brain. Oh my God. You know, like to be able to give myself that compassion in the moment. But then also like the, the thing that I notice uh, in, in slightly bigger examples is when my system is asking me for something that the little puritanical part of my brain, I think, especially having been raised an evangelical pastor's kid, like, right, those those messages are very strong in my history of like, you don't deserve to feel good until you've worked hard. You, you know, you don't, you don't deserve basic love and compassion and, you know, being seen and held until you've achieved the thing that you're supposed to achieve and proven yourself. And it's so much easier to just let myself have pleasure or give myself the reward before the task, because that does give you some dopamine. And sometimes it makes it easier to do the task rather than waiting until after. (laughs) And when I learned that trick, I was like, game changer, (laughs) reward first. (laughs) So yeah, all those, all those little things. And then just, you know, knowing that the way that my system works to go back to the sort of cyclical seasonal or, you know, the, the patterns of needs that I have days where I can do a lot and produce a lot, be very creative. And then almost all of the time, if I have a day like that, I need a day or two where I don't have anything scheduled or it's like a very, you know, very light and where I'm not demanding anything of myself. And that works really well. And it's, you know, one of the reasons that I'm self-employed is because that that's just what works. And when I try to make myself do the same thing five days in a row for eight hours a day, there's just, there's nothing in me that can do that sustainably for a long time. I remember the days when I'd only have one thing on my schedule a day mm-hmm. and not even on a, on the schedule, one thing to do, like go to the yeah. bank and deposit this check. Like that was, <laughs> that was enough. And getting that one thing done was actually enough. 
And I look back and there's a part of me that feels shame around that. And then there's also a part of me that feels really glad that I was able to really recognize what I was capable of and what was too much for me. Yeah. 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 And I'm at the point too, where, you know, people essentially ask me sometimes, you know, how do I trick my brain, (laughs) my neurodivergent brain into doing things? And I'm like, yes, technically I know how to help you tips and trick your way into making your, your brain do a thing, but it's not a sustainable way to live. And it's not what I'm interested in really teaching people how to do. And what you're describing, the like figuring out what you need, actually hopefully having the space and community and support needed to do it for some period of time, right? And maybe that's just finding a small period of time where that is possible if it's not, you know, if you don't have the big structural supports, but actually doing that, again, it's it's slow, it's not sexy, it's not big, it's not psychedelic, (laughs) but but it's sustainable. And it's, and once that like, base of self-trust is there and the you know to to talk about like parts of yourself you know in ifs style like that that you trust that you're going to take care of yourself like my inner child is very i should say my inner three-year-old is like very much a three-year-old right like you're not going to win every argument (laughs) (laughs) yeah once you learn how you learn you can learn how to do anything Mm. yeah And yet we live within an education system that doesn't actually teach you how you learn. It doesn't provide an environment that is conducive to you figuring out how you learn. And yet so much of adulting is that. It's like it's me figuring out what are the supports that I need in order to make my life functional. What are the supports that I need in order to reach the goals that I want to reach And how can we do this together? And that we part has only come about in the last couple of years for me. Mm. So I'm 45. So the we thing only started happening sort of around the age of 30, 43. And so it really is a, 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 a process. Yeah, my partner was very, very good to me during that process. I mean, I remember we'd write down the list of the errands and then he'd sit there and go, okay, let's put them in order. I mean, this is when I was like going, I'm, I'm not going to do drugs anymore, right? And my brain was just so scrambled and he'd help me put them in the order because my brain would make a mental map of town. And then we'd walk out the door and we'd get into the car and I'd be like, okay, let's go here. And he's like, that's not the order that we agreed on. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> right? like it, it, it was. and then I'd be oh yeah yeah yeah, that's right okay cool 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 we'll we'll go to we'll go there first okay and then and then we go there and then as soon as we've done that one thing it was like it wiped my brain clean and then I would just go to whatever was floating around next instead of like the the order that we that that actually made sense yeah and his patience in slowing me down in the process of that actually caused me to recognize how scrambled my brain was and how mm. like what drugs had done to my brain. And so and that that's that's reality. And so when it came to me thinking about going back to school, 
I knew that I needed to take some college classes that weren't like like it, I needed to just I needed to take it in baby steps. Yeah. And so I would just take one class and I'd add one class into my reasonably spacious life and I saw how that one class like just really threw my nervous system all over the place. And it was like a reading and writing class, you know, where you have to write something every week. And they'd make you read a piece and it was like, it actually took like 20 minutes and I hadn't ever read anything for 20 minutes, not for like, I don't know, 10 or 15 years at this point in time. And I actually had to read it over like four times before I could synthesize a response to the question prompt that was actually coherent and not like a shallow answer. And that was also reality. Yeah. And if I didn't put myself through the experience of learning how I learn and meeting life on life's terms and acknowledging the reality, I would have kept doing the thing that I'd done in the past, which is shooting myself. Why is this taking so long? This should take me faster. It's back to that accountant story. Why aren't I saving more money? It's like, well, hang on, let's actually work with reality. And then based on reality, we can then recognize shifts and gains and we can get curious about what has contributed towards those shifts and those gains. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. And that's a form of self-compassion, I think, as well of the, you know, just recognizing and curiosity is a compassionate stance. Yeah. Right. Where when a little kid does something, we're usually as long as we're not too frazzled, curious first, like, oh, I wonder why they thought that was a good idea. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, my, My partner, every month or so, I say to my partner, I've got my period. And he, and he looks at me and he goes, oh, again. <laughs> and the, the, you know, the fake surprise in his voice and the curiosity, <laughs> it just lightens everything up, right, and that compassion piece enters. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, I find I, I say that to myself, like when I make a mistake, make a mistake it's like again and (laughs) just like my period it's like here it is again yeah here here I am again yeah and here I am again and again and again yeah Mm -hmm. and we can be in that and allow that and have that curiosity and that compassion and not have it be like it doesn't mean that you can't change or grow. I mean, change and growth is inevitable, but you know, you can, you can still want something different to happen next time and be compassionate in the moment. And I think that's the thing that again, from, you know, just some of the societal messages I received was very hard to do because it was, you know, and I hear this all the time around, um, you know, neurodivergent people who feel lazy. And I don't believe laziness exists to be clear, but like, I, I just hate that word, but you know, people who feel that they are lazy or that they are procrastinating, which is again, a totally valid nervous system response to stress, but that people will describe that as, but I have to be hard on myself because otherwise I won't change. And it's like, actually (laughs) stressing yourself out more and making, you know, feeling like you're in this enemy position with another part of yourself is the least effective thing. 
Because if somebody outside of you were to come at you with that energy, you'd be like, fuck right off into the sun. No, thank mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's not not how I want to approach this. Yes, yes, yes. You know, and I think it can also be a message from your nervous system that the environment isn't actually supportive of you. Yeah. Like when I had to pick myself up by my bootstraps and get myself to work every day and beat myself up in order to make that happen, in hindsight, it was a sign that that job wasn't the right fit for me. Yeah. 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 Oh, my God. I've been thinking about that so much too with, um, you know, having learned a lot of tools myself that, yes, I may you know, be able to get myself through a difficult social interaction with someone who I find challenging and, you know, love myself and work, you know, be okay afterwards and get myself to okay. Or I could just not do it. Like, just because I have the tools to get through it doesn't mean I need to live this way all the time and like constantly be self-soothing. No. And especially for someone who takes over responsibility, it is important to actually check in and let yourself know that just because I can doesn't mean I have to. Yeah. Yeah. And the flip side is also just as true. Just because I don't want to doesn't mean that I can't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And that capacity for discernment, I believe, only arises within that space of self-compassion and curiosity. And having it, then it actually feels like discernment and a real choice as opposed to just running away from one of the options. Yes. Yes. Not that there's anything wrong with that yes. if you need to run away from something. <laughs> totally. Totally. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes, yes. Oh, that that how you speak to yourself piece. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I was running this late this morning to get into the office where there's high-speed internet so I could be here with you this morning, Matea. And what has shifted for me in the last few years is the way in which I talk to myself. So, you know, there's that thing that happens like just when you're about to leave the house or you're gearing up to leave the house, that's when my body gets a spike of adrenaline and cortisol because now I'm in action. And then my brain starts to focus in. And then I see all the things that can get done that only take 15 (laughs) seconds. And now I have the energy and the focus to get it done and I can just like see it all lined up. (laughs) And and so oftentimes that's what causes me to to become late. And then I ask for, I'll let you know I'm going to be late. And then I feel the relaxation. It's like, oh, okay, I've got some space now. And then, but it's, it's that thing of the nervous system and what I do now is I'm able to redirect myself and go, it's okay. Let's go put on your shoe shoes. But before your shoe shoes, where are your socks? Sock one, foot one, sock two, foot two, shoe shoe. Clomp, 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 let's get your bag. You get the idea, right? and I never used to sing it but lately I've started singing it but it's that piece where I'm reparenting myself I get to hold my own hand and I get to hold my own hand and give myself this much information like an itty bit 
an itty bit, just the next right thing. The next right thing is let's find our socks. The next right thing is let's find our shoes. The next right thing is sock, shoe, sock, shoe, or however the order you do it. And in the talking to myself or the singing to myself, it just keeps me on track uh, in a way that is more ventrally mediated and ventrally regulated rather than beating myself up why haven't I got my shit together yet? For fuck's sake, you're 45 years old. How many times? La, 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 come on. And then I can't find anything. <laughs> and then, and then yep. you're putting on grey socks. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the end of the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, and when like in those moments, I if I'm stressed, I don't have the capacity to self-soothe in the same way and actually let it be okay. I can say the same words, but my body does not believe me. If I'm at the same time being mean to myself about, you know, why haven't I gotten my shit together yet? (laughs) (laughs) And I also talk aloud to myself and sing to myself constantly. So that's, yeah. And, and the verbalizing for me helps me, helps me actually take action. and also helps keep me on task and remember, like literally remember what I'm doing, but also like with those steps, you know, the, the neck, what is the next thing, which sometimes it's easy to forget. So. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And that self-talk and I do it out loud, right? That's what it does. It allows me to move on into the next moment with my nervous system being more full and nourished and able to turn up and to then be able to discern. Yeah. 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 Because I don't like turning up for people when I'm feeling uptight. And I think in the past with with a nervous system that's more sensitive, I would get uptight more and then I'd avoid people and then I'd beat myself up for avoiding people, yet I'd want people to be around to help my nervous system to feel better, but I didn't know how to do that. And it would just become its own uh, own vicious spiral that actually lasted for years. Yeah. And see, now we've had this great time. We've hung out together. I'm able to then move on into the rest of my day, having more capacity for the other people who will come my way and having more discernment for other people's nervous systems. Because part of the beauty of learning about this nervous system work is that it's not about being in ventral all the time. It's about tapping into the greater field that allows me to know that it's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so running late this morning, I'm like tapping into the greater field and I'm like, it's Matea. We love each other. It'll be okay. <laughs> like, it'll be okay. <laughs> We're professionals. We'll make this work. It'll be okay. <laughs> uh, and, yeah, and that also helped then to tether me into that ventral energy. Also knowing it's okay to have a meltdown. Yeah. And with my clients, if I'm doing things, if I'm if I'm holding the space and I'm tethering myself into the bigger space, then this space can be somewhere where your nervous system feels safe enough to actually go into your meltdown big emotions in order to complete the stress response cycle. And have that be normalized. Yeah. Because that is the harm. That's the harm. We had meltdowns and people weren't there for us in the ways in which we needed. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so to me, that's the next beauty, that's the beauty of this work that you're putting out there into the world is we can then find our people. We can have meltdowns and be loved no matter what. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And that that journey, the the CPTSD journey of <laughs> I'm safe enough around myself and now I'm safe enough around a therapist and now I'm safe enough around friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yes yeah yeah what a gift it really is thank you so much for being here I do want to wrap up and I have so thoroughly enjoyed this it's been really lovely to connect again and of course I mean your uh your wisdom your your hard-earned wisdom Thank you so much for sharing personally about your journey as well. I think that that's, I mean, for me, it's just, it's one of the most helpful things to hear is just these, you know, the kind of the nitty gritty of what people have gone through. And I always get something out of that. Just like, you know, uh, I'm sure this, this is an episode I'm probably going to go back and listen to a couple of times myself, just like, (laughs) oh, right. That little detail. There's so much, so much goodness there. So how can people find you? That's one of my last questions. And then also, do you have any, uh, not everybody loves the word advice, but you know, do you have anything you want to say to yourself at another age, Mm. like a message for yourself at another age? Sure. So firstly, it's www.linda-tie.com is the website. And there's an interview section in there and a resources section in there where there's lots of free resources and interviews where you can listen to me gas on with, with, <laughs> with folks. <laughs> <laughs> and in terms of words for my younger self, it will get better. It will get better. And your condition is not your identity. Your condition is not your identity. It might feel like this is who you are forever and yet I want to remind you that these are circumstances, these are conditions. It is not your identity and at some point you may wish to reclaim your identity and say that loud and proud. I'm a former child refugee. I'm recovering from trauma. I'm in addiction recovery. I have a neurodivergent brain. I see the world differently and you will find your people. And once you find your people, life will get easier. And that in and of itself will be its own journey, its own delicious journey. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Can I ask you that question, Matea? Like right, Mm -hmm. right now today in this moment, what would you say to your younger self? Uh, You're not broken. And just generally that it's not you, you know, like I didn't even, I didn't even know that what I was experiencing was trauma until closer to adulthood, basically. So, cause it was so normalized and my two best friends growing up were also domestic violence situations. So it just, that was all I saw. That was all I knew that for families. So, um, I think you just, yeah, just knowing that it wasn't me, it wasn't my fault. And that was, you know, I, I wasn't even having those thoughts yet. I wasn't even, it was just the the bedrock of just believing there is something wrong with me. May I offer you those words? Oh, sure. Ah, <laughs> oh, Matea, 
it's not you, you're not broken, it's not your fault, it never was, there's nothing wrong with you. Thank you. I love it. The si- yeah. the sirens outside your window. Oh, yeah. start. <laughs> I very much live in a city. Yeah, <laughs> coming, coming to rescue you. <laughs> I I think there are probably siren sounds I have to cut out of almost every podcast, <laughs> <laughs> or like a car alarm or a car honk or something. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I also wanted to share that, and I can't remember whether this was in the 12 week thing or in some other thing that I did with you, but I remember that there was a, um, it was the exercise around like reaching. And then I remember there was some moment where you reached toward the screen. Mm-hmm. So you, like you were reaching for us. And again, I don't remember exactly what context that was in cause it's been a while, mm-hmm. but I have experienced things like that in other contexts and yours was the very first one where I was actually able to accept it and like (laughs) enjoy it. So that's one of the reasons I like your work so much is just because I have that, you know, trusting safe enough relationship with you that you can offer me things that my nervous system can actually accept and not just sort of sit on a shelf over there. Like, yeah, yeah, that's nice. Nice try. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, Matia, I take such delight in you. And this is, this may or may not come across on the podcast, but I'm going to do it. So I'm going to reach <laughs> through the screen. And if you want, you can lift up your arms and I'm going to slide my hands underneath your armpit. Right, I'm going to slide my hands underneath your armpit. And then I'm going <gasps> to lift you up. <gasps> pull you towards me and we're gonna rub noses we're gonna rub noses <laughs> I'll lift you back up again <laughs> and then put you down <laughs> so that was Linda literally lifting the computer so it gives you the visual <laughs> it is very silly and very fun <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And we get to imagine possibilities. And that's, yeah. that's, yeah. When you're able to imagine new possibilities for yourself, that's when we start to make a little bit of movement. Yeah. Yeah. And I know if we did that in real person, you'd be like, get away from me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, too much. <laughs> no armpit touching. <laughs> And so there's so much beauty in the Zoom space and in the podcast space and in the electronic space that I, I feel that that some folks don't appreciate, yeah, mm. yeah, or they don't have the appreciation that for some of us, yeah, we, 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 that, that we get overstimulated. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And being able to, you know, be in your classes and, you know, turn the camera off when I needed to, that was I, that was, I mean, one of the most, first of all, one of the most helpful things in the pandemic for me total, but also just, you know, really starting to realize my own needs around, wow, I need a lot of space to be able to integrate and and hear these things. And like, I can't be thinking about my facial expressions and <laughs> that's just like one layer too many when I'm processing this much stuff. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. 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 Yes. I'm so glad that you that the experience landed for you as learning how you learn. 
and yeah. learning what you need. Thank you so much. Oh, you are so welcome. <laughs> I will very likely be splitting this into two episodes because we talked for a long time. Okay. <laughs> Just so you know. Okay. Um, and yeah, uh, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I will I'll put your link in the show notes so people can easily click through to your website and see what you're up to and how they can find you and hear more of your brilliance. And thank you. Thanks everyone for being here. Thanks, Matea. <laughs> Thank you. Talk to you all next week. Thanks for being here and taking a moment for yourself. I hope the episode sparked some ideas or possibilities for your own journey. If you're looking for gentle ongoing support, I invite you to join the Like Your Brain community. It's a non-hierarchical and no-pressure space to share our lived experiences together and learn from each other. Ask authentic questions, share your own wisdom, and be a part of building a safer space for folks with identities that are often marginalized. And if you're not yet ready to be seen in a group space, we've all been there, you can join the podcast support tier, which has a private podcast feed with some of the learnings from Like Your Brain and additional podcast content, so you can absorb on your own terms and timeline. We're here whenever you're ready. The link is in the show notes or at patreon.com slash that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash M-A-T-T-I-A. Have a great week.